Hello, Canucks fans, and welcome into episode 112 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, let's get into the game flight to start things off. The Canucks started this flight against the Arizona Coyotes with a 7-1 win. JT Miller had five assists. Quinn Hughes had three. Vasily Podkolzin had two goals and one assist for a three-point night. Another good game, this time against the Stars. Canucks winning 6-2. It was the new line of Pedersen, Besser, and Dickinson all getting it done. They each had three points. Dickinson's probably his best game as a Canuck. And it was a hell of an atmosphere in the building. I was at that one. The Canucks then hosted the Ottawa Senators and came away with a disappointing 4-3 loss in the shootout. Brock Besser had a goal and an assist, and Quinn Hughes had two assists. Next up was Minnesota, and Minnesota, I think uh, they could do something in the playoffs. They're they're a tough team. They beat the Canucks 6-3. Not the best night for Demko, but hey, it's uh, what can you do? He's, He's being strong all season it was again Pedersen with two goals getting it done to hit the 30 goal mark a couple of helpers for Connor Garland as well yeah tough tough last couple of games for the Canucks I gotta say Pete yeah I mean I kind of knew I was chatting with a couple people on Twitter I was like you know I I kind of I I just I had a feeling uh with the Minnesota game like Minnesota, you know, I, I just said it. I I think they could be a Final Four team this year. I really do. I, I think they could get through that division and surprise people. I, I totally agree. I, they're a big team, and they're a physical team, and they're going to be a tough out for whoever has to play them in the first and second round. I think they're going to be hard-pressed to, to wear Minnesota down for a seven-game series. It's not like it'll be easy for them. I mean, they likely they're it's it's all but confirmed they're playing St. Louis, uh, and then they you know quite likely or you know you'd think they'd go through Colorado after that. But again, I think uh, I think they got better goaltending than Colorado. I think they're bigger than Colorado. I think they could cause some problems. Yeah, I agree. I I actually think they match up pretty evenly with St. Louis. I would actually give them a bit of an edge in regards of the high end talent. I think Kaprizov again is what top five in scoring this year. I believe. Um, but yeah, I mean that Minnesota team, man. They've uh, they've come a long way since the play-in, or yeah, I guess it was the play-in series against the Canucks way back in the bubble. And they know they need to go for it this year because they've got a lot of cap penalty coming on to the books next year. But yeah, that was uh, that was a tough one for sure. Um, but uh, we're, we got a lot of Canucks stuff coming up on this episode. We are going to do a little bit of chatting about stuff from around the league as well. We're going to bring back the Around the Room segment. Um, and we don't have a guest this week. It's uh, just the two of us, Doug. Yeah, man, we're uh, we're riding solo today. Uh, you're, uh, you're the driver and I'm riding shotgun, um, which is generally the case on these uh, speakeasy episodes. But yeah, bringing back the around the room segment's good. It's hard to to squeeze in an around the room segment when we have a guest on and we're chatting for an hour uh, just with the guest. So uh, I'm excited to kind of talk about some of the news notes around the league. So I, I got the steering wheel and you're holding my beer. There you go. Pretty much. And I'm controlling the radio. <laughs> oh, right, right. Flipping through the AM dials, find, trying to find some good oldies, eh? <laughs> 650 C aisle, man. 
Oh yeah, man, that's uh, that brings back the memories. We that was like driving around in my dad's old Chevy Citation, and uh, that that would always be it was CIL six fifty. Nice, the Chevy Citation as well, man. That's that's another classic. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a bit of a Lego car, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it, it's like a it, it take like something like a pacer, but make it only straight lines, and yeah, that's the Citation, bit of a brick. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Um, how's things going, Doug? And I know again we've had uh, a bit of a funny recording schedule. Life seems to be getting busy on both ends here. But uh, what's what's shaking? Any any good stories to tell? Uh, I mean, not really. Uh, just work, obviously. And then you know the weather. It's like you get a day where it's nice and sunny, like today. But then yesterday it rained for half the day. So it's just. I think all of us in Vancouver are just waiting to get that nice stretch of good spring weather. I mean, I say spring. We're getting closer and closer to summer here. Um, and I think also uh, the cruise ships. I think this is the first weekend with uh, a bunch of the cruise ships leaving Vancouver. Um, so it is a busy weekend in the city. I tell you that. Well, it was last last week for the cruise ships. But I know they're, they're back, um, which, uh, which is good for all of us that need uh, – or rely on tourism in the industry. Um, yeah, man, it's, uh, I was down on, I ran a bit on the seawall today. I biked to work, uh, kind of hugged the water. Uh, it's nice out there, man. It's, uh, it's, it's good to get that spring kind of feel, you know, I mean, this city, there's just so much to do when uh, the weather's good. And, uh, I, I love just being on my bike or out running and, or just sitting on my balcony and having a beer, man. And, uh, uh, you know, the windows are getting opened a little bit more every day around here and, uh, waking up to the birds singing more and more. It's like, ah, yes, we wait all year for this. Yeah. I mean, the nine months of rain, uh, it's totally worth it when you get to this point of the year when you live in Vancouver. Uh, Doug, outro music time. Uh, last episode you edited. I know the track well, very well that you used. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, I think most people know the track and know the band well. Uh, you know, I did Arrested Development, Everyday People, uh, which is actually um, – a sample from the last time I did the outro track from another famous musician, Sly and the Family Stone. So there was actually a little bit of a tie in there, some, you know, uh, uh, between Arrested Development and the last outro track of Sly. And yeah, I mean, it's just a great track and it's, it's one of the, um, iconic early nineties kind of hip hop songs that I remember It's one of the first kind of like big hip hop songs I remember listening to on repeat over and over and over again. And look, I'm not ashamed to admit this. I mean, maybe I'm partly ashamed to admit this, but you know, it was like this crisscross jump and like snows informer. And I guess that's probably because being Canadian, I think, you know, the snows informer was kind of shoved down our throats, but uh, yeah, these three tracks were probably like the first three, like, hip hop tracks that like I remember listening to on repeat over and over and over. And then obviously opened up the whole world of like hip hop and then, you know, tribe called quest KRS one, big daddy Kane, rock him, you know, that all kind of just opened up that this is before the kind of like gangster G funk rap stuff when, you know, it had that kind of boom bap feel, which has always been my favorite type of that early nineties, late eighties hip hop. 
Yeah, Arrested Development when they came out, that album, uh, it was it was it was kind of weirdly received at the time because it was in between a lot of different spaces. It was different, um, and that one, that version of People Every Day that you put on there, uh, that's actually the Metamorphosis mix, which was used in the video. Uh, the album version was totally different, um, but yeah, this was the uh, the video version, and I think it's the much better version, uh, the one that you chose. Yeah, I think the the Metamorphosis rip, like you said, it's it's a little actually more upbeat and i think a little bit the tempo's a little higher as opposed to the one that was on the uh, the album originally and then i mean that album in general is incredible like you got mr wendell tennessee like yeah there's just so many hits off that album and for me it was a, a seminal group and a seminal album that really got me into hip-hop in the early 90s yeah it's a start to finish album it's a it is a, a good one um so yeah nice choice breaking in the arrested development folks you can find us online i'm at pete underscore gas on twitter and of course the podcast is at canuck speak give me a follow on twitter at doug Venn, and check out the playlist on spotify it's the canuck speakeasy outro playlist another funky jam will be added to the playlist at the end of this episode by pete and yeah be sure to give it a like and give it a follow it's a good way to break up your work week All right, we do have a lot of Canucks chatter coming up, but kind of out of respect for everything uh, that's happened in the past week or so, we are actually going to start with our Around the Room segment, and then we're going to get into the Canucks. I think you're going to want to hear this. Uh, No, I'm just playing. I'm I'm having fun here at the hockey game. So first off, Doug... It's been a tough week or so for hockey, uh, losing two legends, two great Canadians, uh, Mike Bossy and Guy Lafleur was uh, the news that I woke up to uh, this morning. And uh, I mean, for me, uh, I know I've said it before, but Mike Bossy was one of my first original favorite hockey players. He was, uh, I think, the only player to ever score nine consecutive 50-goal seasons. Uh, he scored the overtime winner in my first ever in-person game. Um, of course, when I was still younger, I was still trying to figure out who my, my team was for a little bit. I ended up, of course, with Vancouver, but at the time, the Islanders were still good. My uh, my grandparents lived pretty close to the arena in Long Island, um, and Bossy was one of my first play- favorite players. Guy Lafleur, I mean, of course, a Habs legend, but... I only really remember him as like a Nordique or a Ranger uh, towards the end of his career, but I know what he what he was as a player and what he was capable of, and I could only imagine during the 70s uh, with, with that Montreal team, with him playing there, what he meant to that city. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit young to really remember either Bossy or Lafleur. Um, the thing that's incredible about Mike Bossy is he only played 10 seasons and the the amount of goals he scored in those 10 seasons is extremely impressive. I mean, you said it, Pete, he scored nine consecutive 50 goal seasons. So of his 10 year career, only one year did he not score 50 goals. And I believe the last year of his career. So his 10th season, I think he scored like 46 or something like that. And he, his back, obviously he had to retire early because of his back injuries. But I mean, it just an incredible pace and an incredible goal scorer, arguably the most pure goal scorer in the history of the NHL. 
I know you can make arguments. You know, some people would say Pavel Bure. Obviously, we're seeing what Alex Ovechkin has been doing, and we'll get into that a little bit later in this segment. Um, so, yeah, I, I was a little bit young, but when you go back and you look, I mean, they won four straight Stanley Cups. It's just Mike Bossy's resume speaks for itself. And then, obviously, Guy Lafleur. I mean, to be considered, what, top three, maybe top five all-time Montreal Canadian players in the history of that franchise when they are the most storied franchise, not, not only in the NHL, but arguably the mo- one of the most storied franchises in all of North American sports. Like, they're right up there with the New York Yankees and LA Lakers, and I'll throw the Boston Celtics in there as well as, like, the four most, most storied franchises in any sport. Like, I, I, I would put those four teams ahead of probably any team in the NFL, in my opinion. Um, and Lafleur's right there as the all-time greats. I mean, you've got, obviously, Maurice Richard, Jean Beliveau, and I guess, you know, Guy Lafleur, maybe, you know, the top three. Um, he was a very charismatic guy, very, very outspoken. Um, I mean, there was talks about him smoking darts on the bench in between shifts, which is, you know, very 1970s. Um and yeah, I mean, obviously it's a sad day. Uh, it's been a sad week for hockey in general, losing two icons of the sport. And yeah, man, respects and thoughts and prayers to their family and friends. I'd say Brett Hall in the pure goal score conversation as well. So were you saying that Richard Beliveau and Lafleur were like the three best players of all time? Or is that what you no, were saying? No, no, no. No, arguably the three best Montreal Canadians of all time. Uh, arguably, okay. right? Like you obviously, you know, people would put Ken Dryden... I'm sure some people would argue Bob Gainey, you know, Patrick Waugh. But I would say the consensus would be Richard is, I would say, always number one. Uh, Belleville is probably number two. And then Lafleur's right there as number three, right? Again, you could argue Dryden. You could argue Patrick Waugh. You could argue the pocket rocket, you know? Um, but generally speaking, I I would say those are the three most iconic Montreal Canadian players, and we're talking about the most iconic team in the history of the NHL. Yeah, I think I think those would probably be for for the Habs. Um, and you're talking about iconic teams. I think uh, for North America, uh, for sure, um, they, they'd be right up there. Uh, on a global level, though, no, uh, just because there's so many big soccer clubs that, that always end up taking the reins with those. But uh, in North America, the Habs are. Certainly are. I mean, going back with Mike Bossy, yeah, those nine straight seasons where he scored 50-plus goals, the only season he didn't hit 50, like you mentioned, was his last year where he had 38-63, and 63, and he had to miss the rest of the season because of injury, but he probably would have hit 50. But out of his nine seasons as well, he had five 60-plus goal seasons out of those nine consecutive, uh, including three straight seasons where he had 60 goals. Guy Lafleur had a stretch in there as well where he had five straight 50-plus goal seasons, and he hit 60 once in there. But Lafleur as well was on a street a stretch from the 74-75 season to 79-80. His lowest point total was 119. Uh, just just crazy points. Mike Bossy one year, 81-82, put up 147 points. The year before Bossy got injured, he had 61 goals and 62 assists. Like, just crazy stats. And again, it's not like getting Cy Youngy or anything here. It, it's always pretty even with his goals and assists. He certainly had a few more years where he had more goals and assists, but uh, it wasn't completely off the rails. Well, and there's an argument to be made that 
arguably those were two of the greatest dynasties in NHL history. And they kind of followed one another, right? For sure. You had the Canadians coming out of the seventies and then boom, it was the Islanders right at the beginning of the eighties. And you know, that's arguably, you know, the greatest dynasty run in hockey that we've ever seen. Well, and I mean, after that came the Oilers, right? As well, yeah. like it goes one, two, three, like that. Like it really was. I mean, the seventies was the Habs and Bruins, and then the Islanders for those four years, and then the Oilers had the five and seven, and then after that, we've only had a handful. It looked like you know Pittsburgh might have done it uh, if Lemieux didn't get injured. Yeah. Detroit um, had and, that run there. I think they won three yeah. of four, or something like that. I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a few like the Devils had a few over a period of years, and so did the the Avs. Um, like there was a few, but no one was clear cut dynasty mode. And uh, uh, that I think both those guys were certainly members. Uh, I mean, you look at some of the other Hall of Famers that they played with, uh, pretty incredible on on both sides. Oh yeah, I mean that Montreal Canadian team. I mean, I I, I would assume. 90% of the players in those that 70s run that they were on are in the Hall of Fame. Like, you know, like that is one of the greatest uh, teams in professional sports as far as, you know, the amount of championships they won in that short amount of time and the amount of those players that are actually in the Hockey Hall of Fame today. It's just, it's just incredible. And, you know, even hearing, you know, stories of Mike Bossy where the last year of his career – Brian Troche was having to help tie his skates because he couldn't bend over to tie his skates because his back was so messed up, right? And obviously you had yeah. Denny Potvin as well, who's arguably one of the most underappreciated defensemen of this era, uh, you know, of that era. Like I know at the time he was the best defenseman, but I don't know if you know we talk enough about Denny Potvin today and just how much of an impactful player he was to that team. For sure, for sure. Um, two great players, two legends. Uh, tough week for hockey. Um, RIP both of you. Um, we wanted to at least get those guys in early and talk about that because, uh, uh, again, even though, like you said, Doug, maybe a bit before your time, you, you've certainly been a hockey fan long enough to know who they are, and legends never die. And, uh, you know, for me, um, I... I don't think I ever got to see Guy Lafleur play. I certainly got to see Mike Bossy play, um, and uh, you know I'm, I feel very fortunate about that. And I, you know, I think about that when I go to see players these days. It's like you know, one day I'll be looking back and being like, hey, I got to got to see Sidney Crosby play, you know, or 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 Alex Ovechkin. Um, and speaking of, let's that's where I wanted to switch gears. Actually, it was a bit more towards here uh, with our around the room segment. Uh, talk about not just Ovechkin, but Scoring in general uh, this season, scoring is way up. Ovechkin is one of those guys. He's one of four 50-goal scorers in the league, um, and he continues to chase down Gretzky's record. But, man, how old is Ovi now? Like 36, and he's he's got another 50-goal season under his belt? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Like, the, the rate that he still score, scores goals at at his age and also just how physical of a player he is on the ice – a lot of those guys break down, you know what I mean? They're just, <laughs> their bodies break down. But Ovechkin, I mean, he's a tank. And the fact that I think he's, what, one of four 50-goal, one of four players to have nine 50-goal seasons, I believe it's Gretzky, Lemieux, Bossy, and Ovechkin. I, I'm trying to figure it out. I, I know Gretzky, Bossy, and obviously Ovi, and I think Lemieux is the other one, but I, yeah, I, you might have to fact check me on that one, Pete. Yeah, I'll, I'll see what I, I can do. He also had one year where he hit 49 and one year where he hit 48. 
uh, and one year where he hit 46. Um, 780 career goals and counting. That's uh, it's pretty impressive. But but again, not just with him. Uh, there's a lot of guys this year who like at this moment. 82 game season you say okay that's your point a game mark right now there's 20 guys above that there's two more guys at 81 and there's a handful more around 79 78 77 uh and that could all hit even 76 and so like you're kind of looking it's like wow there's there could be a real good handful of point per game players this year in the nhl and scoring is up and this is good to see because there were i remember years a couple of years when there's a i think it might have been uh, the taylor hall year when he won the art ross or with less than 100 points or i may not have been him i can't remember but there's definitely some i think it was jamie ben jamie ben yeah, might have been jamie he won ben. The, yeah the heart and the art ross i believe yeah and and so now right now you've got six guys already over 100 points um representing four different teams and and there's more guys who could hit as well yeah i mean of the six guys that have hit over 100 points four of them are on the same team right you've got mcdavid and drysaddle and then i believe it's kachuk and gudro so the they're two not of- all on the same team no no mcdavid and drysaddle are on the same team and kachuk and gudro are on the oh same. like that so yeah that's that's that- the way you the way you said it i thought you meant like all four are on the same no team. no 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 i said four or two of the six four two of them are yeah they're two they're on two different teams essentially four of the two yeah it, I, i'm confused the way i'm saying it now but <laughs> it's also incredible that the, the two alberta teams have 200 point scores as well right so you got edmonton yeah. with two and you got calgary with two and I mean, scoring in general. I mean, you, uh, the other, like, obviously, you know, the Canucks won 7-1 against uh, the lowly Arizona Coyotes, but uh, Tampa Bay blew out the Maple Leafs the other day. I believe it was 6 or 7-1 as well. Like, there have been some high-scoring games. 8-1, there you go. I mean, the Florida Panthers have had a couple of, you know, wallopings. Obviously, the Colorado Avalanche as well. I mean, Jonathan Huberto, I I still don't think people are talking about the season he's had this year enough. Like, he's second in league scoring. At least last time I saw, he was sitting second in league scoring. And I know a lot of people are talking about Matthews with the goal production for Hart. But I just, to me, it's like, how is Huberto not getting talked about enough? I think he's getting talked about. I've seen people talking about him. But the thing with the, with this year is there's probably, you know, I think there's about eight guys or so that could be in the nomination for the Hart Trophy this year, which is a real testament to just kind of how good the league is this year. Like Huberto, certainly. Um, Austin Matthews, I think, is in the conversation. I think Kale McCarr is in the conversation. Kaprizov should be in there. Johnny Goudreau, um, as usual, McDavid and Drysaddle. Like, Shashurkin. Hard not... Yeah, I mean, Shashurkin for for Shurkin. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, Ovi, it's hard not to. I mean, you know, Victor Hedman to me is another guy who who should get uh, some look. I think Roman Yossi should get a Yossi, look yeah. uh, as well with with how well he's playing. That's like 11 or 12 guys. Like, I mean, they got to narrow that down. That's going to be tough. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it, this is going to be one of the more hotly debated Hart Trophy candidate years like I think it's just like you could make an argument like you said for 11 different guys uh and you know what I think every one of those guys has a valid argument on why they should be the Hart Trophy winner this year it's it's good it just goes to show like you know how competitive the league has actually been this year you know it's it's been very competitive and I know the east 
the the playoffs in the East, the playoff teams in the East have, have been set for, what, over a month now, pretty much, maybe even a month and a half. So there hasn't been much of a playoff race out East. But just the, you know, the scoring and the pace that these guys are scoring at and the fact that scoring is so high up this year, but yet there is a goalie who you could make an argument should be in the Hart Trophy nomination as well. So, you know, it just goes to show you just, you know, the talent in this league, it's, you know, arguably top to bottom, one of the most talented years we've probably seen. You know, teams are so much more talented now than they were. Sure, guys were putting up gaudy numbers in the 70s and the 80s, but the bottom of the lineup is so much better today than what the bottom of the lineup on all those teams playing in the 70s and 80s were. Just going back to Florida, they scored the most goals in the in the league this year, that 325. That's 24 more than the Maple Leafs, who are in second. Florida's goal differential as well, plus 103. And you're like, oh, is that good or bad? Well, just to put that in perspective, Montreal's goal differential is minus 103. Uh, <laughs> and Arizona's is minus 107. So it, it does tell you just like how much they're scoring and, and big wins. Uh, I mean, Colorado's a plus 86. Calgary's a plus 84. St. Louis is a plus 70. Uh, and Carolina's a plus 68. Like there's some, there's some big ones there. So... The teams, I do feel that there is a real, like, not just, you know, for the heart, but for also for the, the playoffs. I think there's, you get in, I think you got a chance. And scoring-wise as well, our boy JT Miller is still top 10 in scoring. So uh, he's sitting 10th right now. 93 points for JT. Yeah, I mean, the likelihood of JT hitting the century mark, I mean, there's, what, six games left or four games left, pardon me. And, uh you know, he could, could he get seven points in his last four games? I mean, there's potential there for him to do it. And yeah, it's just, it's just nice to see scorings up because, you know, there was the kind of the trap era. And then, you know, I know the league the last decade or so has tried to open up offense and they got rid of the two line pass, or I should say they got rid of the two line pass. They got rid of the red line, right? So you can still have a two line pass, but it just obviously never really happens, uh, because the red line's gone. Um, I still think they need to get rid of the trapezoid. I hate the trapezoid, uh, and I think that actually helps open up the offense as well, in my opinion. Um, but, but yeah, uh, it, it's nice to see, and I, I think hockey is on a big uptick. And the year that they returned to ESPN and got the full coverage from ESPN, plus Seattle coming into the league, and I know Seattle has not had a great rookie season, um, I still think it all makes an impact, and we're seeing hockey grow daily in the u.s and i know a lot of canadians just shrug and roll their eyes who gives a shit but it's important it's important to grow the game and it's important to have that support from our neighbors down south and i love seeing it i really do doug i'm gonna i'm just making this up on the spot here i'm gonna put you on the spot here i'm gonna list you a couple of guys and their goal totals their current goal totals for the season and i want a one word response for you from these players okay so I'm just going to give you a player and his goal total and hit me up with a, a one word, uh, with the first word that comes to mind. Okay. All right. I'm going to start near the top. Chris Kreider, 51. Punked. <laughs> I, f I feel like I'm on Ashton Kutcher's punk show when you tell me he's got 51 uh, goals. <laughs> um, Matt Deshane, 40. Surprised. Elias Lindholm, 39. Expected. Brock Nelson, 36. Healthy. 
Uh, Troy Terry and Tage Thompson, both with 36. Young. It's a lot of T's, those two as well. Andrew Mangiapane, 35. Daryl. <laughs> Adrian Kempe, 34. Who? <laughs> and uh, uh, Josh Norris at 33. Ottawa. That's accurate. Um, yeah, so a lot of interesting names looking through uh, the top goal scorers there. Um, Doug, let's uh, move this over to our Canucks chatter, though, because that is what we're here for, and we could uh, ramble on looking around the league at all the stats for a while. Um, good place to start with uh, the Canucks, though, the playoff picture at the moment. Um, I mean, you know, we got some very optimistic, friends out there who are holding on you know shout out to guys like Leaf Rolin um you know he's 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 keeping the keeping the faith alive um but you know realistically this is going to be tough right like i mean is it, it it's over isn't it Doug i mean technically it's not over but obviously the canucks now no longer control their own destiny yes so i and think i mean I, there's yeah, Sorry, I, 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 no, I just think, yeah, that's the issue, right? Is that they're not in control, so they need help from other teams in the league. So they're now seven behind LA for that last spot in the division um, with four games left. So if LA wins, that number three spot is is out. You can't can't get that anymore, which means that they are then chasing Nashville or Dallas for a wild card spot and you still have Vegas ahead of them as well. So LA at 94, Nashville 93, Dallas 91, Vegas 89, Vancouver 87. I mean, it's just like, I I mean, for me, I mean, I want them to make it. Uh, Of course I do, but they've been kind of in this spot ever since Bruce took over, you know, they, they've, well, they moved up when Bruce took over, but it's been such a slow grind because uh, they started off so poorly and they've crept their way up and they've worked and clawed and they've moved their way up from 12th to 10th, essentially. Yeah, I mean, the run they've been on since they made the coaching changes been incredible, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like they have enough juice to get there. Rob Williams, uh, sports editor at The Daily Hive, uh, I'm sure most people follow him, you can follow him at, at Rob the Hockey Guy. He had a, tw- uh, a tweet talking about what essentially needs to happen for the Canucks to make the playoffs. No matter what, they have to go 4-0. They have to run the table in their last four games here. So there's three different scenarios Rob calculated. Uh, the first scenario is the Canucks go 4-0. Dallas goes 2-2. Two and two, And Vegas would have to go 2-1-1. One one. If that scenario happened, which isn't necessarily completely unlikely, the Canucks would make the playoffs. The next scenario that Rob put out was, once again, the Canucks have to go 4-0. and LA would have to go 0-2-1. Vegas would go 2-1-1 again, and the Canucks would get in. And then the final scenario, which seems pretty tough, um, the Canucks have to go 4-0. and the Preds would have to go 0 4 and 1, and Vegas again has to go 2 1 and 1. Uh, so mm-hmm. those are the only three scenarios where the Canucks could actually make the playoffs. See, mathematically, I mean, the Canucks could, and the way I look at it is they could go 3 and 1, but obviously you just don't want to because if you're going 3 and 1 
and Dallas loses their last four, you leapfrog Dallas. Yeah, but I guess do you leap you leapfrog them in points, right? Uh, yeah, you clear them by two points. Okay, yeah. I mean, I I guess yeah. The best case scenario is that you just win out, and you hope that Vegas. I mean, no, in every scenario, Vegas has to go two one. Well, they don't have to go two one one. They need to at least lose one, and losing regulation or losing overtime or a shootout in one of their last uh, four games. I mean, yeah, at the end of the still. day, at the end of the day, I look at it. Those last two games, obviously, there's the Ottawa game. Uh, and there's the wild game and the Ottawa game. I think one of the reasons why it was a bit of a disaster was Thatcher Demko and Demko. We'll talk a little bit more about Demko and you know how impactful he has been on this club later in the episode, but I think the guy's tired and you know, he should have had that night off and you know, unfortunately Yaroslav Halak sustained an injury and Demko had to come in in the second period and play the last two, the second and the third period of that game. And then he had to get trotted right back out there against the Minnesota Wild, which are a really tough team. And I just think he's tired. I think he's played a lot of games. And how many games this year when Halak has started? And now I know Halak's played a lot better lately, but there were, what, four or five games I can think of off the top of my head that Halak started and Demko had to come in in relief. And I just, I just, I just think he's worn down. I think he's tired. He's played too many games this year. This is by far the most amount of games he's ever played in his career last year, even to start the year, it was kind of almost a 50, 50 split between him and Holtby up until maybe a third or even halfway through season. I think after Christmas, Demko was kind of given the reins to be the number one and Holtby took more of a backseat. But early on in that, uh, last year, uh, Green was playing Holpe and Demko almost 50-50. I would almost say it was a 60-40 split, 60 going towards Holpe. Holpe started the year last year, too, if I remember. He got the uh, the opening night game. Um, he did? Yeah, D- Demko's played in 63 of the Canucks' 78 games. That is a lot. Um, I know a lot of contending teams, they like to have their starter down more closer to 55 um, and the Canucks, obviously, Halak had some tough stretches. Uh, they were riding Demko when they, they really needed to. Um, hopefully next year with Spencer Martin coming in, uh, they're able to lean on him a little bit more and get him uh, at least 20 starts. But you said it there, Pete. So he started 63 of the Canucks' 78 games. Not and I would 63. Say- He's played in 63. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, I thought you were saying he started 63, and then I was like, well, then if you add the four or five games he's had to play in relief. But still, yeah, 63 of no. 78 games. I mean, that's that's a lot of hockey for a goalie. Um, and a goalie who has, hasn't played this many games ever in his career. I mean, obviously, you know, he came up through the collegiate level. And they don't play nowhere near the amount of games they do in the NHL. And look, Demko's been amazing. He's, in my opinion, and we'll get to this a little bit later, he's been the MVP of this team. But you can really tell this last week, you know, he's, he, he's needs, he, he needs rest. And unfortunately, he just hasn't been able to get it. Most games that in a season that he played with Boston College, 39. Most games he played in a season with the Utica Comets, 46 and before this season most games he played with the Vancouver Canucks 35 and this year he's at 63 so I do believe as well that that fatigue certainly playing a factor uh but I mean regardless this this run it's been 
it's been the most entertaining Canuck season that we've had in years. That's for sure. Like, I mean, obviously the big off ice changes at the start of December uh, made made things entertaining right there. But the way that the you know you you kind of saw as it went on the skill and the talent that we knew this team had, particularly up front, finally started to get going, and they started scoring goals in bundles. And now it looks like whatever was ailing. Pedersen seems to be gone. Besser uh, has been playing very well lately, I think. JT Miller continues to be a stud. Connor Garland is is buzzing. Pod Colson we've seen blossom. Um, all of a sudden, you're looking at a decent top six. Uh, but the questions remain uh, with this team. Uh, and I mean, we'll have all offseason to dive into all that stuff. Um, but like, what do you do with the blue line? But overall, I mean... Even the blue line this year, I thought they, they've handled themselves well. I've been very impressed with uh, what Travis Dermott's brought to the club. And a guy that, again, I don't think people talk about a lot, I think Brad Hunt has been quite serviceable as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the Canucks blue line is definitely over exceeded what I think a lot of expectations heading into this year were for them. Um, I mean, Luke Shen as well. I mean, you know, he's a guy who has been a seventh defenseman the last few years, you know, when he was winning those Stanley Cups in Tampa. I know he had to step into, I believe it was a Cernax injury last year. So he was playing, you know, a decent amount of time in Tampa's playoff and Stanley Cup run last year. But yeah. And then obviously, you know, Tyler Myers, the much maligned Tyler Myers, he's played well this year. Um, I think Oliver Ekman Larson is a lot better than what I think people expected he would be this year. And then obviously Quinn Hughes. I mean, the talk about Quinn Hughes heading into this year was he needs to be better in his own end. And I think Hughes has been much better, much better in his own end to the point where it's like, yeah, man, like this kid, I know this year with McCarr and Yossi and the the numbers and obviously Adam Fox as well, but you know, I think he's, you know, getting to that point where, you know, he could be in the conversation for a Norris trophy in the future. I really do. I think I think he's got that in him. You're right. His defensive game this year has really improved. He was a liability last year, as we know. And uh, I've said this before on the podcast uh, is the way he reacts with the puck in his own zone now is very different. He doesn't panic. He doesn't hurry to get it out. He's not afraid to make the short play, the short safe play. I think before he felt like he had to do it all himself or he had to look for the long stretch pass and he's not doing that anymore and he'll settle down. He'll go behind the net. He's so slippery uh, that he's able to make space out of nothing and uh, he's continues to impress me. It's It, it has been fun. I mean, we're, we're it's, this whole off season, we're going to Get ready, Canucks fans, because we're going to be debating everything. Every We're, we're going to go through the gamut of who's trading, who's staying. We're going to get back into that, I'm sure, the Miller, uh, the Besser situation. And, and I mean, we, we got all season for that, off season for that. But I just want to weigh in on that a little bit. Is the way that Besser has played lately um, and his age, it's kind of got me a little bit back onto the thinking that, hey, you know what, maybe if we can sign Besser at a reasonable cap hit, like kind of around 6, 6.2, something like that for maybe a six-year deal maybe maybe you do trade Miller while his value is high and get some assets because uh, it is gonna be very tough and I mean the Canucks only have I think what is it like 18 million in cap space or 13 million like it's not a lot it's of cap space for next year they need to create some cap space to really improve uh, the blue line and and uh and other aspects so I don't know I'm kind of back on the Maybe I know he's a he's our top scorer and uh, arguably being our best skater this year. Um, but 
I don't know. Uh, it, it is going to be hard to keep all those guys up front, though, is what I'm saying. No, I agree. And I, I think another guy that we didn't talk about um, is Bo Horvat and just how much this team's actually missed Horvat the last two games in Ottawa and obviously against the Wild last night. And, you know, that's another guy who is a UFA at the end of his next contract uh, coming up at the same time as JT Miller. And I, again, we flip-flopped all year on, you know, who you keep, who you trade. Is this the guy you get rid of? Is that the guy you get rid of? And I don't know. Like, it's it, it's tough. Like, I, I know Besser's played well since coming back from that injury uh, sustained from uh, PD, of all people. Um, but again, like, you know, how, how do you lock Besser up? What's a fair contract for Besser, right? Like, he still has yet to hit 30 goals. And I'm a big Besser fan. Like, I'm, I'm a huge Brock Besser fan. I've got a Brock Besser jersey. Um, but he's still not really... And I know he's young, but he still hasn't really hit that potential, right? And I think one of him or Garland needs to get traded. If you're going to make a big trade or a big impact to this team, it's got to be one of those two, um, in my opinion. Because obviously, you know, the center position is such a premium. And the fact that Miller can play the wing and center, I think, kind of puts him above both Besser and Garland and what they can do. But again, can you afford to sign Miller? Like, what does a new Miller contract look like? He's probably going to want you know, 10 plus million dollars if you can keep up this pace heading uh, into next year as well. And I think this management group has a big decision to make, you know, can they try to get him signed this off season? They won't, they won't go that high if that's the ask that that's for sure. And I don't think the Canucks are willing to trade Horvat. Uh, they want to keep their captain around. What about Boudreaux though? Um, like Bruce is uh, a lot of chatter about uh, what's going to happen with him? I mean, he's got an option for next year, but there's some thought that maybe they go and create a new deal and extend him to give him a little bit of job certainty so he's not a lame duck coach. It sounds like he really likes it here. He likes the city. He likes uh, the players and the, and the team saying all the right things. The fans love him, obviously, as we know. Um, what do you think happens with Bruce? First, I'll just, I, he, do you think he's going to be back next year? And do you think uh, they're going to try and sign him longer than that? I do think he's back next year. I am surprised that there's been this much kind of talk and speculation about whether or not he's coming back. And I guess this is always going to be the case when the coach is hired and then the GM is hired, right? And and the president of hockey, essentially, because it was Bruce Boudreaux, then it was uh, Rutherford as the president, and then obviously he went and hired Patrick Alvine and filled out the rest of the management group with the likes of Cami Granato. And Emily Costa and Gay, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, I think Boudreaux absolutely deserves to get another season behind the bench for the Canucks. Um, the only thing, like, and this is something, if I was, you know, a senior management of a sports team, the only thing I would be doing is when you're doing your off season or your end of season exit interviews, I would be asking about the coach and you know, hey, how was the coach? Did you get along with the coach? You know what I mean? Because it seems often that there are these coaches who the players don't really think fondly of, and yet they get signed. I mean, I think of Travis Green, right? Like, I didn't think there was a big split between the dressing room and Green, but clearly the way the season started and the way last season went, there seemed to be a bit of a split, you know? And I know some people say that, you know, you know, he didn't lose the room or whatever, but I, I, it kind of feels like he did. And 
it just blows me away that like you wouldn't ask the players who are having to deal with the coach on a daily basis what they think of the coach. You know what I mean? And again, I'm not saying you're going to make any you know rash judgments just because a player didn't like their ice time one game. I mean, Brian Burke had the famous saying when, I forget what it was, but there was a player who came to him and was complaining about my ice time. And he said, don't talk to me about your ice time. Talk about your coach. That's the person who's in charge, not me, of you know how many minutes you get to play. Um, and I always like that. I like that Burke allowed the coach to dictate that. But again, I mean, if there is an issue in the dressing room, you know, management needs to know. And, you know, that maybe you can sort it out. Maybe you can't. But yeah, I would definitely be bringing Boudreaux back next year. I, I don't think there's any doubt uh, myself. Um, it's just a question of whether they lock him up longer, give him some job security. I'm sure that ownership is a little wary with all the changes about like locking up a new coach and maybe they want to see more of a sample size, but you also don't want a coach coming in and having great success next year. And then this kind of hanging over the head, it would be nice to be, okay, let's build out. Let's, let's get some foundations here. And I know, you know, you always hear about management groups wanting to bring in their own coaches, but I mean, if you got a guy who's getting the job done, what does it matter? He seems to be a likable guy. I mean, I don't know for sure, but uh, he seems like it. Yeah, it seems like the players like him. I mean, the results speak for themselves. And it isn't just in Vancouver that the, his results speak for himself either. I mean, I mean, the perfect example of what you're saying, Pete, is Elaine Vigneault and Mike Gillis. Vigneault was hired as the coach, the Canucks coach before Gillis was hired as the GM. And there was lots of talk that, you know, Gillis might let Vigneault go before they went on that uh, run. But... They didn't, right? So, and Boudreaux, I think the issue with Boudreaux is that he's thought of as a regular season coach. He's never really had any playoff success. Um, and I get that, but you know what? There are a lot of those coaches who just, for whatever reason, they struggle in the playoffs, but then, you know, they, they're given another opportunity and another opportunity, and then finally they go on a bit of a playoff run. I look, going to the NFL, I look at Andy Reid, you know, coach of the... Kansas City Chiefs, he was thought of as a guy who was a great regular season coach but could never get it done in the playoffs. Well, he totally changed that narrative when he won that Super Bowl with the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say with, you know, with with Bruce as well, he's he has coached 90 playoff games up, up to this point in his career, but he has, right, he has lost more than he's won. He's 43 and 47. Um, but, I mean, at this point in Vancouver – you would take a, a a coach that would guarantee you to get into the playoffs for a couple of years right now. And, and you, you have to really with the core of this team, start looking at the playoffs. So you're not going to win the Stanley cup in your first year in the playoffs. At least it's not likely, but you need a coach who can at least get you that and get you that experience right now. So um, for me as well, I think it's, it's definitely uh, a bring back Bruce. Hey, going back to um, we were talking about 30 goal scorers uh, in our round the room segment. Um, but we didn't talk about how the Canucks have three 30-goal scores for the first time in a long time, um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's, it's been a long time since they've done that. Well, yeah, I mean, I tweeted this out last night, you know, when we had uh, Cody Sweet on the podcast about, I asked you and Cody, do you guys think we'll have two 30-goal scores this year? And Cody said, yeah, I mean, he, he had the math about, you know, how many games it was going to take. Miller to do it, how many games it was going to take Horvat to do it. And obviously both those guys did it. And then PD did it last night. And I wasn't expecting PD to, to get the 30 goal mark this year. It's, it's actually pretty amazing. Um, how good of a second half of the season PD's had, he's going to have, 
uh, I believe his highest goal total and his highest point total by probably the end of this season. And yet he had such a terrible start to the season at the beginning of the year. It just goes to show, you know, how dialed in he's been the second half of the season. And yeah, I mean, I love to see it. Like I, I'm trying to think of the last time the Canucks had three goal, three thirty goal scores. Okay, well, I can tell you this a little bit more putting you on the spot, Doug. A little bit more trivia here. Uh, shout out to Riot Survivor, uh, Quinn Hughes slash BLM on uh, Twitter, who's a great follow. He uh, posted this yesterday, the list of every time the Canucks have had three 30-goal scorers uh, in a season. It has happened seven times, one of those times actually with four 30-goal scorers. But the last time the Canucks did it, do you want me to give you the year? Or do you want to just take yeah. a guess? Well, I mean, I don't think it's 2011. No, no. That was the last time they had two, though. Yeah, that was a Daniel and Kessler. Yeah. Uh, yeah, give me the year. 95-96. All right, so you got Burray. You got McGillney. Nope. Don't have Burray. Oh, because Burray was injured. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay, so you obviously you, got you do McGillney. have McGillney. Yep. Um, I'm going to say you've got Trevor Linden. Yep. Um, who else? Uh, Jeff Cortnell. Nope. But he was part of another uh, crew that did it. He was part of the four. Okay. Uh, so it's not Cortnell. Um, Martin Jelena. Yeah, nicely done. Marty Jelena uh, was, yeah. uh, was the third one. I would have struggled with that one, uh, I, I think. I'm trying to remember Jelena. Um, yeah, Jeff Cortnell was part 92-93 was the year the Canucks had four. That was Burray, Nedved, Linden, and Cortnell. And they did it the year before with Burray, Adams, and Linden uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, – and then three times in the 80s as well. The Canucks had three 30-goal scorers. But I think every team had at least three 30-goal scorers in the 80s. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, goaltending and, like I said, the bottom of the lineup really wasn't up to snuff uh, by today's standards. No, not at all. Um, it's, it is pretty impressive uh, that they've done that. I mean, especially, like, you know, you even just, you know, you mentioned when we had Cody on. That was only a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden now, Lise Pedersen in, is tied for the team leading goals. Uh after the season he's had uh, tied with Bo, who might be out for the year. So there is a chance. I mean, JT is still one behind him, but there is a chance that Pedersen's going to finish the year leading this club in goals. And uh, he's got 13 goals over his last 12 games as well. Like He is scoring at a rate. Um, so if he keeps that rate up to the end of the season, obviously we have to carry that over to next year, and then we can go Toronto Maple Leaf math on it and uh, <laughs> claim, uh, claim a 50-50 and 50 over, over the two seasons. Leafs math. I love, I love it. I think that's, that's a great yeah. name for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want Leafs in any of our no, names. I know. No, no, no can do. It's a joke. Um, um, another thing uh, that was pretty awesome this week. So I went to two games this week. I went to the Dallas game. Uh, great atmosphere uh, in the building. Like the, the crowd was, was pretty pumped. Uh, I was very lucky. I got a, to sit in a box uh, through work. Um, that was pretty cool. Um, but just like the whole, the crowd was into it. But the next night I went to the game against Ottawa and I was a part of the Lars Scheiders group sitting behind the goal there. Um, again, the shout out to Jay who was on the podcast, uh, last episode and we chatted a lot of Lars Scheiders, uh, on that show. Um, it was awesome. It was without a doubt, like the best crowd atmosphere for a regular season game, 
Uh, I've been to like the only one that comes close was when the Sedines played their last game. But the Sedines, when they played their last game here, it was really just the ending. Like this was the whole game from before the puck dropped till the end. Uh, it was standing. It was cheering. And I, it sounds like it came across on the television as well. But I just wanted to say uh, just what an amazing job that was. I'm wearing the the Lars Scheider shirt for this. Uh, I will definitely be going back and getting more tickets through them. Um, I'm hoping the Canucks do this more often because the atmosphere in the building, and again, it was... I'm, I was in the middle of it, so I couldn't tell what the rest of the building was, was doing, but the feedback that we were seeing online uh, was just fantastic, That and overwhelmingly, the Canucks need to make this happen more. And look, I watched that game on TV, and it was coming through the television. You could see, awesome. um, and you could hear just how enthusiastic the crowd was, and you know, just the atmosphere. I mean, you felt the atmosphere sitting on your couch, like literally. You did, and it was great. And I know overall, I think the there was more positive than negative in regards to that game and the cheering of the fans. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was great, and it's something I definitely want to do in the future. Um, and I agree with you. I hope the Canucks uh, do this more often and open up more seats to the large large shiders and especially the the lower bowl because I, I, I do think it makes a, a big difference to the in-game presentation and atmosphere uh, of a Canucks game because for too many years, it's been a boring atmosphere. It really has. Yeah. Yeah. We called it uh, the morgue. And I, I want to say like, I know some people are like, Oh, they're obnoxious. They're drunks or whatever. I'm like, look, there's definitely people drinking beer in there, but I did not see a single rude interaction. There was, I was sitting next to a little kid who was his first hockey game. Uh, and he was just, he grabbed my little white flag and someone else and he's dancing in the aisle. And like anyone going by him was just like, yeah, yeah. Like just, uh, and, and even the, the, the Canucks would be like, they came up and like, look, if you want, we can move you to another seat. But the family was having fun. Um, and so they were doing that with people too, who some people didn't know. And they got kind of in that area, they offered to move. Them and I'm sure some people did get moved, but I did not see anyone being obnoxious in the group. It's just like, look, if it's uh, if you're buying a ticket, it's a sta- it says on there, it's standing, it's standing aloud, it's uh, cheering, it's a supporters section. And I've done this in other places. Like, I mean, uh, a Whitecaps game is a good example. If you buy a, a ticket in the Southsiders, you know what you're in for. And I think you need that element at the game uh, in some capacity. If you don't want that, there's other spots you can sit. And I know that the Canucks were accommodating with season ticket holders and people who didn't want to be near that. But I think you need to have that component. It reflects through the atmosphere into the the rest of the building uh, as well. And we have an enthusiastic fan base. And this was really like just being at like a East Van house party. Uh, all watching the Canucks. It was that it was that blue collar crowd. It was the people who are just diehard Canucks fans. And we need that as well. We need the places where we can go and just stand the whole game. I want to stand the whole game. It was awesome. Yeah. And look, I'll say this, like there are times when I've been at sporting events and someone's standing in front of you or even like at a concert, which is more of a sit down con- show than like say a stand up show. And you got someone standing in front of you and it's annoying, right? If you, if you don't want to stand the whole time, I get it. Right. But then you're kind of forced to go well, cause the person in front of you is standing. But again, if it's kind of like said beforehand, Hey, look, this is a cheering section. You know, you're going to be in this section. Fans are allowed to stand throughout the course of the game, you know, be prepared, I think it's good. You know what I mean? I think if, you know, obviously ticket demands and, you know, current season ticket holders all play a factor in 
to this, but you know, if the Larshiders were given like a designated area of the rink, you know, upper and lower bowl, and it was kind of quarantined off where, Hey, anyone in this section, you know, be prepared to stand the whole game because the person in front of you and the person in front of them and the person in front of them will be standing. And you're not going to be able to see the action of play unless you're standing. So be prepared, but I love it, man. And I, I definitely think it needs to, it needs to be more prevalent in Rogers arena. It's like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's been a morgue for years outside of like playoff hockey. It just, it's very corporate. It's very stuffy. It's very quiet. And you know what? Even I got to give credit to the Canucks sports entertainment as well, because I think they've done a better job of the in-game presentation and trying to make it a little bit more fun. And I know some people roll their eyes on like these little plants within the crowd where the guy gets up and all of a sudden he starts like break dancing and doing the worm in the aisle. Like, okay, this guy's clearly a plant or there was the one on the kiss cam where like they've showed this couple and they looked at each other cause there was like a seat in front of them and then they kissed and then it went back there. And then this guy sat down who was meant to be the girl's boyfriend or whatever like that. I know some people roll their eyes. I think, I think it's funny. You know what I mean? And I don't know. I actually like it. And I, I it, it's just one of those things where I think, you know, Having fans back in the building I and not having those fans in the building for a year and a half, almost two years, I think the Canucks and the group behind the in-game product are trying to make it more enjoyable for you. And it's like, hey, we missed you and you missed us. You know what I mean? I, I agree with that, actually. A lot of the little video clips and stuff that they did were much more topical and relevant, much more Vancouver. You know, like there'd be clips with like Ryan Reynolds and and uh, Seth Rogen and like there's other just a lot of Vancouver stuff and also trolling the other team, which was something that uh, you wouldn't <laughs> do. You know, like that 300 shot where he like kicks the guy into the the hope, the pit with and then yeah. like you know that have the team logo and stuff like just just stuff like that. You wouldn't get that before in Vegas when they came into the league. Really started doing that, embracing that, and then Twitter's like Carolina and other teams started doing it a bit but as a fan you want that right like you you want that little bit of, of sass and uh and you know that rallying behind so they've done a really good job I thought with the stuff that's going up on the board and the music was very good this last game as well I know they had a DJ again for it much better song selection um and you know it's again just breaking out of this uh, the thing that I found with the Canucks for a long time is they were going very corporate and very family friendly, but it was not an experience. And they're getting overshadowed by other buildings in, in the city and around the world. And they're, I think they're starting to realize it's like, hey, you know, we've got a, a market here of now Gen Xers or parents and they're bringing their kids and stuff. And they don't want to just sit there and, you know, be in a in a quiet environment. They They want to have a good time and uh, you can still do that and be a family environment, but just kind of upping your game and not having guys like nearly Neil come out and sing sweet Caroline. <laughs> well, you know what? I also think having Abbotsford yeah. and the Canucks there, you know, that actually had to make the, the big club up their game because, you know, a lot of those people who live in the Fraser Valley, they're more likely to go to an Abbotsford Canucks game now, which is great. But, you know, how do we get people still wanting to come to see the big club? You know, when it costs so much money and parking's expensive, popcorn's expensive, a beer's expensive, you know what I mean? And it's just like, hey, and you bring up a really, really good point, Pete. I actually think Vegas, even though I can't stand Vegas, the hockey team, but I think how they really changed the whole in-game experience in rinks around the NHL, 
I actually think, you know, that's a topic maybe we can discuss in a future episode, just the actual impact Vegas has had on the league outside of on the ice, but the in the game experience. And I think there are a lot of teams around the league that are looking at Vegas and looking at the success that they've had with their in-game presentation. And they're trying to put more money into presenting that type of atmosphere and that type of, I guess, outside the box thinking to the traditional NHL game experience. I agree with that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think they, uh, like what Vegas has done has certainly affected uh, teams around the league and has really changed the whole experience. And uh, now people see that and they're like, oh, hey, why can't we be more like that? And, uh, you know, copycatting is uh, one of the greatest compliments that you can get. So um, I, I agree. Maybe, hey, that'll give us something to, something in the off season to, to chat about. But again, Lars Scheiders, uh, that was awesome. Uh, again, Jay, thanks for the shirt. And uh, I cannot wait to do it again because... That kicked ass. Doug, last thing on our list before we get into the free pour, uh, Canucks are doing their fan vote awards. Um, so let's kind of rattle off our choices. Uh, I'm going to give you the, the the easy kind of softball over the plate here. The Walter Babe Pratt best defenseman. I mean, I think we both know who that is, right? Yeah, it's Quinn Hughes. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no, no doubt about it. Um, Cyclone Taylor, MVP. I'm going Thatcher Demko. I know, I know JT Miller has been amazing this year. And I, look, I, I do think that you can make an argument for Petey the last, you know, two months of his NHL campaign. But I think if you're looking and analyzing the entire year, the only reason we're even being even considered to be still in the hunt for the playoffs is because of Thatcher Demko. I'm. Uh, I think I'm still going to go with JT Miller for this one. Um, just uh, some nights he also carried the team on his back, um, and uh, I just uh, I need I needed to make sure that uh, he gets his name somewhere on there because he's their leading scorer by uh, a lot. Uh, Pavel Bure, most exciting player. I think this one's a little bit tough, right? Because I mean, again, are we? Are we going to analyze the entire year? Are we going to have recency bias and just look at the last couple of months? Because if you're looking at the last couple of months, I'm probably going to say it's Petey. But if the entire year, I'm I'm probably going JT Miller. I mean, I think JT Miller has been exciting to watch. Um, I really do. And he would be my pick for most exciting player. He's scored some beauty goals. I am giving it to Petey. Um this year, I just think when he's been on the games he's been on, he has been exciting, and and we're seeing it more and more. So maybe I'm I'm biased, and maybe I wouldn't have said that after the first half of the year. But um, I still think uh, when a guy with uh, who gets the, the puck who has the most creativity, I, I think it's it's him. So uh, I'm giving it to Petey, uh, the Fred J. Hume Unsung Hero Award. I mean, for me, it's pretty easy. I, I'm going Luke Shen. I mean, I just. The big brother who like will stand up for any of his teammates, uh, a guy who you know is on a two-year league minimum deal. I mean, he's coming back next year. I mean, it's Luke Shen, dude. Like this guy, easily is the. Un- I mean, I shouldn't say easily. There's a, you can make an argument of a couple other guys. I know you brought up Brad Hunt earlier in this episode, but for me, it's Luke Shen, hands down. I thought you were going to say Lamico. Uh, for me, it's Tanner Pearson. Um, I think uh, I think he's played well above his contract value, and again, I don't love the contract. But I don't think that uh, he gets enough attention. I think Luke Shen, 
does get attention. Um, so that's why I didn't give it to him because I think he does get a lot of praise. I don't think Tanner Pearson really, except for the last week, I have seen his name getting thrown about by more and more people for unsung hero. Um, but what he, he's just been a quiet worker out there. Uh, and I just don't think he's a guy that, uh, really we've talked about a lot and I do think he's, uh, noticeably missed as well. So, uh, I'm giving it to Tanner Pearson. Yeah, I mean, I think the definition of unsung is a guy that people don't really talk about. And you're right, Pearson hasn't been nearly talked about enough. And then uh, you brought up Lamico's name, and I know I've been, you know, hot on Lamico um, for the first two uh, months of our uh, new segment, the, you know, three stars of the month type of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I'm still going to lean with Shannon, but I think um, Pearson is definitely a, a worthy choice. Nice one. Glad we had a few different ones in there. I think Quinn Hughes is probably going to have the Walter Pratt Award for a long time as well. That's the third year in a row. I think he's going to get it now, and he's probably going to get it for another six or so as well. Although, who knows? Maybe Rathbone can come up and put some pressure on him. But we'll save that for another episode. Uh, Doug, it's time to go to the free pour. All right, it's that time for the free pour open floor segment of the podcast. And I wanted to talk about a show that is, I believe it's coming out next week, or maybe even came out today. We're recording on Friday, the 22nd of April. And season two of a show called Russian Dolls. Uh, it's on Netflix. Season one was great. It's essentially almost like Groundhog's Day but a little bit darker. Um, obviously, it's got some humor in it, too. Um, a little bit of weird time travel-y kind of stuff. But Russian Dolls Season 2, it's coming to Netflix, I believe, this weekend or next week. If you haven't watched Season 1 yet, I highly, highly recommend checking it out. It's one of those underrated gems, and Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek has been cast for Season 2, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. But yeah, check out Russian Dolls, get caught up on season one, and get yourself prepared for season two. Well, I'm actually going to talk about a show as well, because uh, I, I generally just pick something that's relatively recent in, in my in my brain here. Um, I watch a lot of true crime stuff. I, I love true crime shows, and uh, I started the most recent one, uh, the John Wayne Gacy one, uh, Conversations with a Killer. They did one with uh, a Ted Bundy series as well, which was really well done. Uh, normally these ones, I can just binge and go right through. This is one of the only times where I'm watching a true crime series. I actually had to pause it at one point and just stop because it was like, holy crap, Like there's a, there's a lot to take in right here. Um, I think, you know, probably because it was involved males and it involved clowns. I'm just like, oh my God, this is, this is a lot right now. Um, but it's, if you like that kind of stuff, I do recommend it. I haven't finished watching all of it yet, um, but it's, uh, if you're a true crime buff like I am, uh, it's it's definitely worth a watch from what I've seen. Uh, just uh, makes the brain spin a little bit before you go to sleep. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episodes 120. 
12 just about in the books uh and doug we made it uh without a guest usually the guest kind of carries us and we just kind of chuck in a few oh yeahs and for sures and uh and let them talk but we actually had to talk this week and do do some work yeah i mean you forgot oh don't you know as well oh don't you know um hey doug nba playoffs we don't usually talk a little bit nba um what do you think of the the playing round i i liked it uh I, I really like the playing round, and I actually I'm not going to be surprised if uh, if hockey follows suit. I, re- I really think I, b- I believe it was Greg Wyshynski wrote an article uh, about expanding the playoff teams in the NHL from 16 to 20, and he said one of the reasons it won't happen is because of good old Gary the Count Bettman. But yeah, I liked it. I liked the play-in. I know at first it seemed a little weird and a little odd, and but I actually really liked it. it, it, it I was still wasn't entirely sure how it worked, but I again after seeing it this year because I think initially it, it was last year was the first year the NBA did it, um, but then seeing it again this year it was like yeah there's four teams that are kind of in the play-ins on each side of each conference and then whatever team wins the first game is in, uh, so those two teams get in and then the two teams that lost they play each other I believe once and then whoever wins out of that game also gets in. Um, but yeah, I love it. I, th- I think it's the future. I really do. And I, I actually think the NHL did this in the bubble, right? I mean, that's sort of what the NHL did. And that was different circumstances, obviously, because they had to shut the season down halfway through. And they didn't know if points should count when teams hadn't played that many games. So then they were there was talk about points percentage. And I think the NHL brass came to the conclusion that the best way to do it is we have a play-in, you know, a play-in series between these teams. And the play-in in the NBA is one and done. And I think a one and done play-in hockey would be great because we're so used to these seven-game series. But to have that one one and done game to get you into the playoffs i think it would be great yeah it's kind of a kind of a neat idea that that's for sure and and, i mean hey that would put teams like the canucks into the conversation this year um quickly also go uh, grizzlies go grizzlies you're going i was just gonna ask you're going grizzlies okay i haven't uh haven't really decided who i'm going for to be honest uh i don't know i kind of like the bulls but uh I, I don't know. I, I haven't really picked a team. I've just been kind of watching. And that's been fun, too, just watching some playoff basketball. Uh, I, I think the Raptors are done, though. Yeah, injuries have caught up to them, unfortunately. Yeah, no Scotty Barnes. That that certainly hurts. Um, You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore gas. And do check out our playlist on Spotify. It's the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. We add all the outro tracks, including this one, onto it at the end of every episode. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Ben. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Canucks Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego. The volatile Molotov says